0: Good morning. Well, we're experiencing a crisis, not of the stand, but we're experiencing a crisis in America, and in North America in particular. As those facts indicate, there are all kinds of indicators that are showing that the church in America is not seeing what is happening in other parts of the world. In places that you heard about in the testimonies, like Mali and Haiti, The southern half of Africa, South America, Latin America, and Asia, the church is growing like wildfire. In fact, on average, 90,000 people a day are coming to faith in Christ around the world. That's about 3,700 people an hour, more people coming to faith in Christ every hour of every day than on the day of Pentecost that you read about in the book of Acts, And, and that's exciting, and we are very much a part of that as believers in our sending and our giving and are participating in the mission. But in North America, the story is very different. And we are in crisis mode. And so your pastor asked me to come today and simply share with you uh, a sense of urgency for North America, what is happening. You saw those statistics. I want to highlight a few things in the next few slides. Go ahead and bring up the next one. In this particular slide, you see a reference that describes the rate of growth in the U.S., And that there are nearly 100 million people here in the U.S. that weren't here in 1990. And a large percentage of those are immigrants. In fact, if it wasn't for immigration, the the, uh, population of the U.S. would probably be in decline. And so there's a huge shift towards ethnicity in the United States and a huge need to reach these people who are coming from other lands. In fact, about 10% of the American population right now were born in another country. Next slide. In this slide, you see how the percentage of church attendance is slipping every year. The percentage of people that are in church on any given Sunday is in decline. In 2007, it was 17%. Next year, it's estimated to be 162 The shift of population that's taking place in the United States is towards the cities and has been for decades. Right now, half of the North American population In the United States and Canada, live in just 43 cities. Over half the population live in 43 cities, each of those cities running over a million people. In those same cities, only one in nine of churches exist. We don't have many churches in cities compared to the rest of the country. And so places for people to go and hear about Christ or places that are reaching out are short in number. Look at the next slide. Churches are closing at the rate of 3,500 to 4,000 a year. Evangelical churches like yours and the churches that we're a part of are closing at about a 30% rate, and it's really scary. The mainline churches that have been around a long time, nearly half of those churches in the next 10 years will disappear. Look at the next slide. Looking at the last eight years in the United States, even though evangelicals like us have started nearly 7,000 churches during that time, Other churches, the mainline and Catholic churches, have been losing. So we've netted about 4,000 churches over the last eight years. To keep up with population, we needed to start six times that number. And uh, and that's hugely significant. Look at the next slide. Why, Why is that? This slide shows you the year in which a church was started and whether the attendance at church is going up or down and at what rate. And so if a church was started, for example, in the 1850s, It's in decline. In the 1910s, that group of churches that were started in the 1910s are in decline. And you see that all the way across the board till you come to the 1990s and then the last nine years of the year 2000. You see churches are growing in attendance based on the year that they were started. New churches, your church is an example of that, reaches people. It is an an effective, the most effective evangelistic strategy that we know. We reach more people for Christ when we start new churches. In Arkansas, if it wasn't for the new churches that were being started, we would be in decline as Arkansas Baptists. We would be losing members. We'd be losing mission gifts and that sort of thing. The new churches in Arkansas keep us growing and keep making a difference Well, what can we do about the crisis? How do we respond to it? What is the problem? In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, I believe Jesus addresses this. I was praying about this this week. Your pastor called me about a month ago and explained to me that he was calling the church to pray for missions and about mission involvement as a congregation. And he said that you would have an emphasis last Sunday on international missions, and so this week he asked that we would emphasize North America. And so I was praying about the Scripture, and this is the one that came to mind. And beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends with his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. According to this passage, Jesus is always interested in the one who is lost and separated from God. And that is the 1% difference, I believe, between where Jesus lived and where the church in North America is living. That's our problem. So what Jesus said here, I think, to the leaders that he was speaking to, is extremely confrontational. And as I read it, there were four questions that came to mind and spoke to me. Here's the first one. You ready? Number one, am I speaking the words of life? Am I speaking the words of life? In verse one, it says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Now, the tax collectors were the secular, irreligious Jews of the society that Jesus lived in. The tax collectors collected the tax for the Roman government. They were not paid a salary. And so the way they made their living was by adding to the tax. And they could add to the tax pretty much whatever they wanted to. And the Roman soldiers would back them up. And so the Jews as a group hated this other group of Jews that were tax collectors and that were sinners. And Jesus is hanging out with these secular, irreligious, offensive people. And the interesting thing about that is that they wanted to hear him. It says that they were drawn to him. Notice it says all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to listen to him. He had a message that was irresistible. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Now, did he compromise his message in order to get a crowd? I don't think so. It was his message that was attractive. It was him that was attractive to the people. These people avoided the synagogue, and the people of the synagogue avoided them, but they were drawn to Jesus like a magnet. What was his message? I believe his message is pretty clear and goes something like this. Over and over again he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Speaking to a group of people, saying that the kingdom of God was at hand, was like lighting a fire in a big batch of kindling because there was this huge expectation that the same God that delivered the people out of Egypt, the same God that established David and Solomon on their thrones and brought in this great era of peace and prosperity, the same God spoken of by the prophets who would one day usher in a kingdom with a Messiah leading the charge, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of prosperity, a kingdom where where all damage, all hurt, all pain, all enemies are put away. And, and to a people who were oppressed by Roman government, for Jesus to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, was intoxicating. But I think to these people it went much deeper than that. See, Jesus understood Himself to be on a rescue mission for those who were broken and ruined and lost by sin. People who understood the reality of evil, that evil often has a face and evil is destructive and evil was eating them from the inside out. And Jesus was there to say to them, your Heavenly Father is prepared to forgive you. He's prepared to rescue you. He wants to be with you. He wants to send you out. He wants to set you free. And He exhibited that in His way with them. He loved them. He cared about them. And they knew it. Am I speaking the words of life? I think when you and I are doing that, we are attractive to people. When we are... People of mercy and people of grace and the people around us see it. Here's a second question I see that comes out of this passage. Am I friendly or a friend? Am I friendly or a friend? The Pharisees and the scribes were criticizing Jesus in verse 2. They began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The concept of receiving in that society was the concept of hospitality. And in the Middle East, hospitality is a big deal. And and to eat with someone was to assume intimacy and assume friendship and to have a welcoming posture of hospitality to these people spoke volumes to their heart. My wife, Gail, and I used to live in Baton Rouge, and we, for a time, had an opportunity to minister to a group of Palestinians. Palestinians. And we learned a great deal about Middle Eastern culture when we were with them, and they were in a very secular America as far as they were concerned. And we, we made friendships with them. In fact, one couple in particular, uh, his name was Muhammad. Uh, we invited them over for a cookout, just an, a, a normal grilling of burgers kind of thing. And Muhammad and his wife and kids came over, and he brought a camcorder and was taking pictures of us. He was taking pictures of me grilling the burgers he was taking pictures of my wife hugging his wife he's taking pictures got got a picture of me and him standing side by side locking, locking arms i said mohammed what are you doing he said i'm sending this back home my dad will never believe that there are americans as nice as you <laughs> and then we we fed them the burgers and and he ate the burgers and and he was he was so excited when we got through he was animated he said don we have we have shared a meal together. Where I come from in my country, that means we are very close. We are very close. We are very good friends. He said, I would die for you. I said, Muhammad, buddy, it was just a burger, man. <laughs> but, but it spoke and it reminded me again of how much hospitality and sharing a meal meant in that culture. And it meant just as much in Jesus' day when He received them and He welcomed them And He he spoke friendship to them. He wasn't friendly, just shaking hands and smiling and patting them on the back. He was a friend. And we must learn in new ways how to love people into the kingdom of God through friendship. Question number three that comes to mind as I read this text. Am I concerned with who is here or who is not here? Who is here or who is not here? Jesus tells this parable about the man that has a hundred sheep loses one, and he goes and looks for the lost one, the one sheep that's not there. This is his response to the criticism. And this is extremely significant because Jesus is more concerned about rescuing, and he's making it clear to them, more concerned about rescuing the secular and irreligious person than he is about hanging out with the religious people. Let me take this a step further. Forget the statistics I showed you earlier. If America was 99% Christian and 99% of the population knew Christ as their Lord and Savior, where would Jesus go? You see, He would always go to the 1%. He will always go to the people that need to be rescued and that don't know Him. Jesus is serious about eliminating lostness. For us, the assignment becomes this. We are not called to accumulate people at church. We are called to saturate our world with the Gospel. In Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. Every creature means every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in Bentonville, Arkansas, in northwest Arkansas, needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he's concerned about saturation. Did they understand that in the early church? In Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the disciples are arrested and here's what they are accused of. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in His name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. They understood that they had saturated the city with the message of Jesus and the cross. Later in Acts 19, the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus, the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. In the little province of Asia in southwest modern-day Turkey, that province where Ephesus sat, it's estimated there were 300,000 to 500, a half million people living there. And we read this, that Paul was teaching in a synagogue, spoke for three months, got kicked out, and he was teaching about the kingdom of God. In verse 10, he's teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus, He teaches for two years, it says, so that all in Asia, all who dwell in Asia, heard the Word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. All. Without email or direct mail or snail mail or radio or television or billboards. Just people talking. They all heard the Word of the Lord. The early church understood that Jesus was not about accumulating New believers. He was about saturating the world with the good news. Should we attend church regularly? Absolutely. Sure we should. But Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you and I could come to church. Jesus died on the cross so that He could send us. We were made for so much more. Yes, we should send missionaries, but we should also be missionaries. You are sent too. And then the fourth question is this. Am I pursuing His pleasure Or mine? Am I really pursuing his pleasure or mine? In verses 5 through 7, when this sheep is found, the guy puts it on his shoulders, brings it home, and people get excited because he's excited. And Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the other 99. Joy in heaven. Who's joyful? God. God the Father. That word joy refers to an experience of gladness, delight that He's feeling over what's happening. Jesus was all about bringing pleasure to God. That's why He hung out with the wrong kind of people. That's why He spent time with the secular and the irreligious and loved them. Because the Father loved them. And then He turns to you and me and He says in Matthew 4.19, Come follow Me and I will make you fishers. Of men. So here's the discovery that the earliest followers made as they followed Jesus. When I go after the one lost sheep, the people in my world who need to be rescued, then I am on a collision course with the will of God, the power of God, the presence of God, and ultimately the joy of God. last year I was visiting my father-in-law in Mississippi. And Gail and kids and I were there and I was speaking in their church and I'd been speaking all week and it was about 9, 9.30 at night and I was sitting in a chair My grandfather, grandfather my father-in-law was sitting over beside me and I was pooped. I was just tired. And um, I, I normally go to bed about 9 o'clock so I was up past my bedtime. And... Um, and I get up early. I don't sleep all day. And we get this phone call at the house. And a woman called. And, and she lived down the road, maybe a mile away. And her sister was visiting. And her sister had a lot of problems. And would, would I come and talk to her? And, and she, she knew we were busy and that sort of thing. And she, she didn't want to impose on us. But my first reaction was very, very selfish. I wanted to be about my business. And then I realized I needed to be about his business. And so I said, sure, we'll come. And I uh, got up and threw out our shoes. My father-in-law drove down there and we met this, this woman. Her name was Betty. Betty just poured out her story. She had all of these relational problems and social problems. She lived on the margin of society. She, she had medical issues. She couldn't get the money she needed for some medicine. All kinds of stuff. I mean, just overwhelming. And what I just described here about being on an intercept course with the will of God, the power of God, the presence of God, and the joy of God happened in that moment as I listened to her. And when she got through, I just let her spin spin herself. When she got through, Betty was probably in her late 50s. I said, Betty, I said, George over here, my father-in-law, goes to this church just a little bit down the road. And I know George well enough and I know this church well enough that if you'll ask them to, they will help you in any way they can, to sort out your needs and to get the help you need for your finances and and your medical stuff. I know they'll help you. But as I listen to you, Betty, I've got a larger question. The question is this. Betty, at some time in your life, did you ever trust in Jesus Christ and give Him direction of your life, let Him save you and forgive you for your sins? I mean, she had a church background, so she understood what I was talking about. And she said, said, yeah, when I was uh, nine years old, I did that. I said, really? She said, yes, I did. I I remember uh, doing that and I said, okay. I said, now tell me what's happened since then in your relationship with God. She said, well, not much. She said, I I never really went to church as a teenager or as a young adult. In fact, she hadn't been in church probably in in, uh, 45 to 50 years. I said, Betty, I I said, I got a question for you. That's Something is concerning me in what you're telling me because when a person comes to know Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside them. And the Holy Spirit leads us to do God's will and to grow in Christ's likeness. And I said, in all that time that you were out of church, did you ever feel a, an urge to go to church? Or, or like you ought to be in church? Or something like that? Did you ever feel that? And she said, Nope. I said, well, Betty, something is terribly wrong. I said, I said do you really think that, that, that what happened when you were nine was that? And she said, no. no." And so I talked to her. I said, Betty, would you like to know what it means to be a Christian, how to be saved? And I shared the Gospel with her. I shared how, how Christ came to rescue her, how He died on the cross for her sins and took her place and took all her sins away and rose from the dead to prove that her sins were forgiven. And then I said, Betty, would you like to pray and receive Christ? She said, sure. I really want to do that. I said, okay. And so we got down. I said, Betty, I'm going to pray first. And then I want you to pray. And uh, I explained to her what salvation was. And sh- her heart was engaged. I could tell. And so I prayed very briefly. And then I turned it over to Betty. And nothing happened. I mean, nothing happened. And this went on for a minute. And then it went on for two minutes. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to talk to Betty again? Are we going to have to restart this deal? Am I going to have to just let it go and, and go back home, go to bed, which is where I originally wanted to be? You know, what, what, what is this? And all of a sudden, Betty let out this this cry. And she said, it scared me. She said, oh, God, I'm sorry. And she prayed the most Beautiful prayer of repentance that I'd heard in years. I mean, from the heart, she was broken. And when we got through praying, her face was radiant. She was a different lady. She was pretty tough looking when I walked in. But she was a radiant lady when we left that night. Gail was over visiting her family uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she came in. She said, by the way, she said, Betty says to say hi. See, that's a 1% difference. People like Betty. The 1% difference. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response, and I know you've been encouraged to pray about missions all week long. And, um, And I want to encourage you to continue that. But I also want you to pray about your relationship to this assignment, this mission assignment that the Lord Jesus has left the church. He didn't leave it just for your pastor and staff. He left it most definitely for you. He left it for this entire congregation. And I wonder, as you've listened to the testimony this morning of people who are involved and and you, you look at where you are, I wonder if God has spoken to you about your next step, your place of involvement. You see, it's not just pastors that start churches. Also, there are lay people that start churches. I can't tell you how many churches that Gail and I have been associated with over the years where lay people started the church. And so where where is your place? What is God calling you to? Maybe it's just a a neighbor next door, someone that delivers your mail, a family member. And God has said, that's my lost sheep. That's my lost sheep. And I'm going there. Will you follow me? How has he spoken? Father, Lord, as we respond to you in these moments... um, Some of us will sing, and we'll sing from the heart. Others of us, Lord, will pray. We'll also pray from the heart. Lord, as you have spoken to us, we want to respond to you. We want to say yes. In Jesus' name.